Good morning, y'all. My name is Ed Griffinhagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail, and we're super thankful and grateful that, that you are here, that God has brought us together, either here or on YouTube or Facebook, uh, whenever that may be. Could be. I could be talking. It could be next Thursday. Um, but I'm thankful that we're together this morning. Uh, before I jump in, just to let you know, there's one of these little Get Connected cards in the seat back in front of you. If you've never filled one out or if this is your first time here, uh, we'd love it if you fill this out. You don't have to. We're not going to bend your arm behind your back, but we would love to just know that you're here and to pray for you during the week and the, and the weeks to come. So if you do want to fill that out, you can just turn it in at the little Welcome Connections desk right out here in front. You know, we are uh, we're still in a series that we're walking through on talking about prayer. And we've been doing that for about four or five weeks, I think. We've been in the book of Acts for about 15 months. And we jumped out of that. And we feel like that the Lord really led us to jump out of that. Because typically we preach through a book. We go through verse by verse talking about scripture. And we just felt led to, to jump out and talk about prayer for until he tells us kind of not to. So we've been doing that for four or five weeks. And so I think, I feel like we'll be back in Acts in the next week or two. You know, not, uh, not too many years ago, there was a little small southern town that, that voted in uh, liquor by the drink. You know what liquor by the drink means? You can't sell alcohol in a package store, but you can sell it in a restaurant or in a bar grill or something. So they voted in liquor by the drink, and uh, this had been a dry, a dry county. And there was a lot of opposition to it. And, Townsfolk lined up on opposite sides of the issue and those that were opposed to it, you know, held up signs that said, say no to alcohol. They waved signs that said, you know, uh, we don't need dens of iniquity in our little town. And the folks that, uh, that favored it said, say yes to restaurants, say yes to business. And so not too long after this bill passed, the first little bar and grill, the first little tavern opened up. And the local church began to pray actively uh, against it. Lord, let this business fail. Lord, shut down these dens of iniquity. And they kept at it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, one night there was a terrible thunderstorm. Lightning struck this little pub and it, it burned to the ground. And the church folks were shocked at that, but they were delighted in that. But the tavern owner was ticked. The tavern owner sued them. He contended that their prayers were responsible for burning down his building. Well, they denied that charge, and they said, look at your insurance policy. It says it was an act of God. Our prayers had nothing to do with the burning down of your building. So at the, at the conclusion of the preliminary hearing, the judge said this. He said, well, at this point, I don't really know what my decision will be, but it's pretty obvious which side believes in prayer and which side doesn't believe in prayer. So, y'all, I ask you, does, do our prayers, does anything really happen as a result of, of our prayers? That's one of those points in theology that can really easily be manipulated and, and maybe twisted a little bit around, maybe even abused. Can we, through our, <clears throat> through our prayers, can we make God do something that he wouldn't normally do or can we stop him from doing something that he was planning to do? 
We're going to be today in Exodus 32, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, in the, the 32nd chapter, and we're going to be dealing with Moses' prayer for Israel, and I think that we find in this passage in Exodus 32, we find ourselves uh, dealing with something, facing something that can seem a little bit uncomfortable. Y'all, it's a teaching from Scripture that, that seems on the surface to go against every single thing that we've really ever learned about God. But I believe that in there, in Exodus 32, there's, there's a teaching that probably should help us look at prayer in a, maybe in a new way, maybe in a, in a unique way. And I hope when we're done today that we're going to leave here having a little better understanding of the majesty and of the supremacy of the Lord. I want us to look at some truth claims, a few truth claims that Scripture makes. You know, that's what we do. When we dig into, into the Bible, we, we, we try to pull out truths out of the Scripture, truths that ultimately apply to our lives, truths that, uh, that apply to anybody's life living anywhere on the planet at any time in history. That's kind of the, the role of preaching a message. So we're going to look at uh, a few of the truth claims that I believe Scripture is making here, and there's a few applications of those truth claims. I'm really going to focus on one of those applications, and all of this is originating in, uh, in Exodus chapter 32, but we're going to jump around in Scripture a little bit. So let me give us some context for this, this passage in Exodus. Let me tee it up, I guess, a little bit. You had four or five months earlier, you had Moses uh, who led the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, four or five months before this narrative is written. And it seems like the Israelites, the Hebrews, were a complaining bunch of folks from the very get-go. Ever since they left Egypt, they had done nothing but grumble and whine and Y'all, they've been in slavery for 430 years, about 430 years, and they get out and now they're whining and they're complaining about stuff. And finally, while Moses is up on the mountaintop hanging out, having a meeting with God, the Israelites, and, and listen, we feel like there was about 2 million of them that come out of Egypt. So we're not talking about 150 folks. We're talking about a, a bunch of folks whining and acting like fools when Moses is up on the on the mountaintop, and what did they do? They decided that they knew better, and so they talked Aaron, who was Moses' brother, into building a golden calf, an idol, and they were bowing down to that calf, and they were worshiping that calf, so that worshiping that idol. So that gets us up to, to really to verse 7 of Exodus 32. I want to read this to you. The Bible says, And the Lord said to Moses, He said, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Now, the way that God says that, he says, your people that you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It reminds me, whenever my kids would do something stupid, that my wife would call me and say, your son did such and so. You need to come home and you need to, you, your son, you need to deal with it. So that's what the Lord says here. He says to Moses, go down there. Because your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Verse 8 says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, 
a stubborn people. Now, and, and this is the Lord again, he's saying this to Moses, now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the... See, now Moses is saying, no, 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 your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. He says, why does your wrath burn hot against them? You brought them out with great power and with a mighty hand. Moses goes on, he says, why should you give the Egyptians an opportunity to say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and Israel is Jacob. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So I want you to you see this picture here. God's people sinned. They built an idol. They're worshiping that idol. And God says to Moses, you better go down there because I'm about to smite them. I'm about to thump them off the planet. And Moses prays. And the Lord, verse 14 says, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Some translations say that the Lord repented. The New American Standard and the New Living Translation, I think, say literally that he changed his mind. God said he was going to destroy him, and he changed his mind. Like, I remember the first time I read that, and I thought, what does God change his mind? That's tough, y'all. That word, verse 14, relented, repented changed his mind. The Hebrew is Nacham. Can y'all say that? One, two, three. Say Nacham. You got to go Nacham. You Gentile people can't say that. But look, that word, that word changed his mind or however you translate that. It's also used in Numbers 23. It's used in 1 Samuel chapter 15 about God not changing his mind. It says God does not Nacham. He does not change his mind. But here in Exodus 32, in response to Moses' prayer, it says that, it, that he does. Well, how do we square that up? Like, how do we make sense of that? Like, I want to take a breath, and I want to look at some of the truth claims that Scripture makes about God, about his nature, about his character, about his attributes. Number one is this, that God's attributes, his character, his attributes are unchanging. And if you don't have... One of these wor- little worship guys got some fill in the blanks. If you'll raise your hand, we'll get one in your hand. But God's attributes are unchanging. Lend to your right. Um, who God is, who he is in his being, in his essence, does not change. He is unchanging. His perfections are unchanging. His love, his mercy, his justice, his omnipotence, meaning his all-powerfulness, his omniscience, his all-knowingness. None of those things change. The New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 1 says this. It says, And you, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, 
He says, and the heavens are the work of your hands, and all that stuff is going to perish, but you remain. The writer of Hebrews says, you remain. Those things are going to wear out like an old rag, but you remain. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but, but you, the writer says, you, the Lord, you are the same, and your years will have no end. In other words, you, you are the same, and in an everlasting way, you are the same. In Malachi chapter 3, the Old Testament prophet Malachi, it's plain and simple. Malachi 3.6 says, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. So he is unchanging. He is the same in his essence, in his character. He is the same forever. Truth claim number one is his essence has been, is, and always will be unchanging. Number two is this. His purposes are unchanging. His purposes don't change. He is sovereign, and what he purposes to do, he does. What he purposes to do is going to happen. His purposes always, always achieve their desired end. Always, always unchanging. Psalm 33, and I, this is the NIV translation. I like it a little better than the ESV in Psalm 33. But in verse 10 it says, and he's kind of comparing the plans of, of me and you, the plans of people, and, and what happens and his plans. So he says in verse 10, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. So how long does the scripture, how long does the Bible say that the plans of the Lord stand firm? Forever. They don't change. The purposes of his heart are woven through history. They never change. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah said, verse 46, excuse me, chapter 46, starting in verse 9. Listen to what he says. He says, remember the former things of old. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I'm God. There's nobody like me. He, he said, I declare the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that haven't even happened yet. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. He says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. When, what, what God plans, he does. And what he purposes, he does. It's unchanging. His purposes are unchanging. He says in verse 11 of Isaiah there, he says, I will do it. What I purpose, I will do. Number two, number three is this. His promises are unchanging. God makes promises and they're unchanging. And y'all, we should, we should praise him right now for that. Lord, we praise you that you are a promise keeper. Lord, we praise you that when we can be and are unfaithful, that you are one million percent faithful. Lord, that you keep your promises. And, Lord, we give you the praise and we give you honor and we give you glory for that. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but he says, But the word of our God will stand forever. The promises of God will stand forever. His promises stand tall and, and they're solid and they're awesome and they stand forever. And that is really super similar to... 
Uh, Isaiah pins that about seven, eight hundred years before Christ. But then Matthew chapter 24 records Jesus saying almost the same thing. He says, the heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? My words will never pass away. My promises will never, ever pass away. So, so here we go. We got these three truths that we can pull out of Scripture about the Lord, kind of give us a bit of a foundation. Who God is never changes. What He purposes, those things don't change. What He says He's going to do, He does. He does whatever He wants to. He's God. And then that His promises never die. When He gives you His Word, He's faithful and His Word stands forever. So I want you to take those truths, those three truths, I want you to like inject them into your mind and keep them in the forefront of your mind, keep them inside you, and then, and then transport those three truths over here to Exodus chapter 32. And you may have been questioning in this passage in Exodus 32, is that in contradiction to the rest of Scripture? Is the Bible contradicting itself? And I would say not so fast, Kemosabe. How many of y'all know who Kemosabe is? Listen, it is, it is almost comical that this passage in Exodus chapter 32, this passage that causes so much, for, for 2,500 years, this passage has caused so much debate about whether or not God changes. That passage actually, when you dig in and study it, it reeks of his unchangeability. Like, I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. That it reeks of his unchangeability. Look at verse 11. Exodus 32, verse 11. It says, but Moses implored the Lord. Moses begged. Moses appealed to the Lord, his God. And he said, I want you to listen to how he started his prayer. He starts his prayer, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. So you see what he's doing here? He's appealing to God's unchanging character. He's appealing to who God, in his essence, who God is. The way that God has revealed himself to his people. Because he starts off with the word Lord. And, and in your translation, I'm sure, it is all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals. And we would say Yahweh. Because what's behind that is the word Yahweh. That's the way that you, would, you and I would read that today. But the Hebrew, back in that day, and well, and even today in synagogues, the word is Adonai. They would say the word Adonai because Yahweh was God's personal name. And, and in reverence and holiness, they would not say his name. They, they inserted, here's a theological word for you, they inserted a tetragrammaton which is a word to take the place of another word because they didn't want to get smitten if they said his name. And so they said Adonai. So they would have said this, this word that is there, this word Adonai. Whenever you see the word Lord in an English Bible, all capitals, it is describing this awesome covenantal relationship that that God has with his people. It describes that. It describes the amazing mercy that the Lord has, that Adonai has for his people. It's like Moses is saying, Lord, I know who you are, and how can you not be merciful to your people? How can you not show them grace? Lord, it's just who you are. He's calling 
on Adonai's steadfast love, his perfect power and his, and his unchanging and incredible might. And then he goes, that's verse 11. He's appealing to who God is. And then in, in verse 12, he says, why should the Egyptians say? Lord, like, why don't give them a chance to say with evil intent? Did he bring us out here in the desert to just kill them all in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? He says to the Lord, turn from your anger and relent from this disaster against your people. So he appealed to the Lord's character a minute ago in verse 12 now. He's appealing again fervently to the Lord and he's appealing to the unchanging purposes of the Lord. He's saying, Father God, it was your intent to bring all these people out of slavery, 400-something years of slavery. Lord, I know it was your intent to bring them out of slavery to be a beautiful display of your glory, that, that you would display your incredible glory and majesty for the Egyptians to see and to fear. You, you can't, you just, Lord, you just can't let them all be just destroyed out here in the middle of the desert. I know, it's like Moses saying, I know that your purpose, I know that your intent is to lift your name on high through them and their stories, Lord, and the stories that they're going to tell their children and their children, their grandchildren, and all the way down here into 2022. And I know, Lord, I know that your purpose hadn't changed. It's verse 12, and then in verse 13, so 11 and 12, he appeals to God's essence and his character and his attributes. And then in verse 12, to he appeals to his unchanging purposes. And then in verse 13, he appeals to the promises of the Lord, to the fact that our God that we sing and worship and praise is a promise keeper. Listen to what verse 13 says. This is, again, this is Moses appealing to the Lord. He says, remember, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel are Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. He's saying, Lord, you said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And he's going back to Genesis. And Abraham, who's this wealthy idol-making dude, and his family's got this, this business, and the Lord, and he's and he's 80-something years old, and and his wife is is about the same age, and, and they hadn't been able to have any children. She's the scripture says she's barren, and, and the Lord reaches his hand down and he grabs Abraham and he says, Come outside with me for a second. He says, look up at the stars, count them if you can, but they're countless. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants the number of the stars. That's the promise that the Lord made to Abraham. And so Moses here says, remember, Lord, remember that promise. That promise when you told Abraham, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land because the land was part of that promise that he made Abraham. This land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now, don't let me paint a wrong picture. Trust me. This is not scripture trying to teach me and you that God needed Moses to remind him of who Abraham was. No, it's not, it's not like God is up there in heaven with some <clears throat> divine amnesia like he's on his throne thinking, oh my gosh. Like that, I forgot what I told them dudes back in Genesis. Like I forgot what I said to Abraham. Y'all, it's not, that's not the image that's being painted in Scripture. What's being painted here is a radical image of prayer. 
It is Moses bringing to God his unchanging promises that he has given his people. It is a bold and strong and courageous image of prayer. And again, it is astonishing that in this conversation about God changing or not, that we often, often fail to see this passage in Exodus is just saturated with the unchanging attributes, the unchanging character of God. So now we get to verse 14, and now it gets tough. Because verse 14 says, The Lord relented, the Lord repented, the Lord changed his mind from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So now what do we, what do, we do with that? What do we make what do we make of that? So we got these three truths that we talked through. Who he is doesn't change. His purposes don't change. His promises don't change. The fourth truth claim here that we can pull out of Scripture is that his plan is unfolding. His plan is rolling out. He's been rolling out a plan since before the foundation of the world. So this is not in contradiction to these other truths. Who he is and his purposes and his promises, they stand firm don't change what he what he does does what he pleases it's almost like he's got this thing rigged so what we see in Exodus 32 is this picture of the plan of God unfolding step by step verses 7 8 9 and 10 we see this truth that God judges men in their sin he does sin gets judged has to if the sin doesn't get judged, then God is not just, and God is just, and he's unchanging, and his justness is unchanging. So sin is getting paid for somehow or the other. Don't forget, he's perfectly holy, he's perfectly righteous, he's perfectly just, so sin, sin's getting judged. It's going to get judged back then, it's getting judged today, because his, his, his character, his, his perfect character is rock solid, dead set against sin, and he is set up to judge that. And so he says, Moses, leave me alone so I can hammer them. Y'all, that's what he said. Sinful mankind then, sinful mankind today, stands before a perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly just God and stands under his judgment condemned to destruction that's the state that people were in have always been in that's the, except Adam and Eve that's the state that men and women have been in that's the image that we see in verses 7 through 10 of Exodus 32 praise God it doesn't end there right and as an aside to all of this just know that nothing that happened here snuck up on God it's not it didn't sneak up on him when, when the, the million or two million people built an idol, the golden calf. It didn't sneak up on God when Moses is fervently appealing and praying to the Lord. And we see that's unfolding right in front of us. His purposes and his plans. Part one is that God judges sin. Part two of this unfolding plan is that God, in his mercy, provides a mediator. I want you to see this, this deal in Exodus 32. I want you to think about this now. 
on one hand, you got this, this holy and just and righteous God, and he has sin in the crosshairs. And on the other hand, you got this disobedient people deserving of his wrath, 100%. You got this holy God who's got sin in the crosshairs. Other hand, you got this disobedient people deserving of his wrath. But they're the exact same people that he promised to bless and be faithful to. Y'all, that is crazy tension that exists between those two things. So the question that permeates the text of Scripture is this. How can this holy God, how can this just God, how can this righteous God bless a people who are so ate up with sinful disobedience? How can he do that? How can he bless a people who are so ate up in sin? And it is there in the middle of that that God provides a mediator, Moses, to pray on behalf of the people. Moses was the guy that God had set up to be the mediator for Israel from the very beginning, really from the, before the foundation of the world. When Moses' mama puts him, y'all seen the movie, hadn't you? Moses, put, uh, Moses' mama puts him in a little basket, pushes him down the Nile River. I don't imagine she had any idea that she was saving his life potentially for that moment in history. Moses was the one that, 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 that God gave the law to up on the mountain. Moses passes the law down to the people. When the people disobeys, it was, it was Moses that appealed and went on uh, in, for them on behalf of them in front of God. He was the one who stood before God for the people. He's the one that stood before the people on behalf of God. He was the mediator that God provided in that moment about 1,500 years before Christ. God provided him, and, and God does not do purposeless things. God provided him to Israel for a reason. The reality is this, that God in his holiness would absolutely demonstrate his wrath on sin in the middle of a disobedient people unless a mediator stood in the gap and interceded on their behalf. We see this plan unfolding. The next part is in, in, the, in the mercy of God, in the mercy that God displays, Moses prays and God relents. God relents and doesn't crush them. The psalmist in Psalm 106, he's going on and on, and this is 500 years or so um, earlier. Psalm 106, psalmist going on and on about the goodness of God. He writes in, in verse 23. He says there, he's talking, excuse me, it's about 500 years later. He's writing about the goodness of God, and he says, Therefore he, God, said he would destroy them, Israel, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. I don't want you to miss this now. A holy and just God who has every right in the world to display his wrath against sin, he chooses and appoints a compassionate man to stand in the breach on behalf of sinners. 
Starting to see what he's doing? 1,500 years before Jesus, a God of just wrath chooses a man of compassionate mercy to stand in the gap on behalf of wickedly disobedient sinners. This is not just the unfolding plan of God in Exodus 32. This is the gospel in the Old Testament 1,500 years earlier. It's not some wishy-washy God saying, should I change my mind or should I not change my mind? No, this is before the foundation of the world. It's the unfolding plan of God in the entirety of Scripture. You and I stand condemned in our sin. We do. But praise the Lord that He provides the mediator to stand in the breach for me and you. Y'all, and He does it, and He does it for, for Israel at that, at that mountain, and He does it for us now, a couple thousand years, 3,500 years later. When we are slap in the middle of the sin, I mean in the middle of it, spitting on the cross, cussing God out, questioning him, why did you do this? Why did this happen? I'm not good enough and blah, blah, blah. Right in the middle of that sin, Paul writes in Romans, that's the moment that Christ died for you. Right after you spit in his face, he died for you. God provides the mediator. The New Testament tells us, y'all, that, that one greater than Moses is coming along to mediate the covenant. One who is perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ. God displays his mercy because Jesus took the hit for us. You get that? Jesus took the hit for us. He was sinless. He chose that. He chose willingly to go on the cross. He jumped up on the cross. He's the one that took the hit for us. It was our hit to take. I said sin's getting paid for, and I can choose to pay for it myself. I mean, I can. I don't want to do that. It's a dumb choice, but, but I could. I could. But he did it for me. He stood in the breach, the psalmist says. See, y'all, there's some big picture truths and. And I think there's three things that, that we do with those truths, three applications. I'm going to give you two of the three in four words, and then I want to land on one to end this with. Number one, we should praise God. We should praise Him. We should praise Him every day. If our lungs have breath, we should praise Him. And, and number two, we should proclaim Him. Folks die lost every day. Y'all get that? Every second, people die lost. You die lost you have made the decision to pay for your sins yourself. Like, okay, but it's a bad choice. It's a dumb choice. So God chose me and you. He chose the body of Christ. He chose the church to proclaim him to a world that is lost and dying. Number three is this. We should pray. We should pray to him. We should pray to God. There ain't no doubt about it. We should pray. Now, we often have some jacked-up ideas, some jacked-up theology about prayer, like particularly under the umbrella of American Christianity, like that prayer is somehow intended to control God or, or that it's intended to persuade Him to do something that He wouldn't normally do. That's how people often look at it. That's how people often look at prayer. 
Does it change his mind? That's the question. Does it change him? Well, frankly, that's a foolishly man-centered view of the Christian walk. Like somehow Christians have decided that God needs our advice to know how to best govern the world. That he needs us to tell him what to do. That's not what this passage is teaching at all. He's not some mamby-pamby, mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy God hanging out up in the clouds waiting for one of us to get our, our, our prayer out of our mouths so that he can do the work that he wants to do. That's not the image of God that this book portrays. Rather, this beautiful picture in Exodus 32, it teaches us that God in his sovereignty, in his mercy, in his in his steadfast love, in his unfailing love, in his unchanging plans and purposes, he involves us in his plan. How awesome is that? He involves us in his plan. We get to be part of his plan. We get to play a role in his plan. He's fulfilling his unchanging purposes. He's fulfilling his unchanging promises, doing what he pleases and maintaining control. And you probably say, well, doesn't that make prayer meaningless? If God's going to do what God's going to do, then what difference does it make if I pray or don't pray? But here's the beauty, y'all. Scripture tells me absolutely the entirety of this book that absolutely God is in control. Absolutely God is sovereign. But this book also tells me that at the very same time, my prayers are meaningful. My prayers are meaningful. Well, how can that be? Here's the answer. Because prayer is the God-ordained means by which he accomplishes his plan. Prayer. And he involves us. He involves his people. He's chosen to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. His purposes are always, always, always going to be accomplished. And very, very often, they're accomplished through the prayers of his people. All, all over this book, we see it. All over history, y'all, we see it. We see prayer as the, as the means by which God's people call down fire from heaven. Folks raised from the dead, seeing the lame walk, seeing the blind get sight. We see men and women leading other men and women from everlasting torment and, and, and hell to, and pain to everlasting life and salvation through prayer. It's through prayer. Men and women see incredible things happen as they pray. We see the Lord change the course of human history through the prayers of his people. What a privilege it is for you and I as Christ followers that he would involve us in his plan. It's an utterly astonishing truth in Scripture that God under the umbrella of his sovereign purposes has chosen me and you to accomplish those purposes. I, I believe it's the main thrust of, uh, of why the Lord led me to jump out of preaching through Acts to talk deeply about prayer for several weeks. God has purposes that he is accomplishing in Columbus, Georgia. He does. And we want him to use us to accomplish those purposes. It happened Monday night, y'all. Six or seven days ago. Monday night, we're on the street with our, within the homeless ministry. Monday night. 
served 230 meals, tents, sleeping bags, all this stuff out in the streets of Columbus. Monday night, I was back at our building on 6th Avenue. We got a little ministry building out on 6th Avenue, and one of our street teams was out on 23rd Street and 2nd Avenue, and one of our volunteers, Lynn Ornstein, praised God that Lynn, that, that he put him there. He put Lynn in the right place at the right time. Lynn runs into a guy, 49-year-old guy named Lee. Lynn calls me. I was back at the building. And he said, I, he said you, you, you need to come down here, corner of 23rd and 2nd Avenue. And so they had gone to the, I said, don't let the guy leave. They had gone to the next stop, and me and another guy went down there. We, I sat on the, on, the, on the curb with this guy. We talked for about 20, 30 minutes. He told me his story. Guy's 49 years old. Two years ago, his 18- and 19-year-old son and daughter were killed tragically in an automobile accident. Six months later, that, that accident wrecked their marriage. Six, and this guy had a good job, had a house, owned a house, had a couple cars, married. Six months later, lost his wife, lost his house, lost his job, lost his cars. Just south of Dothan, close to Georgia-Florida line. Comes to Columbus on Friday night. I said, what, what brought you to Columbus? He said, I don't know. I said, okay. I just kind of tucked that away. So we're talking to him. Twelve months earlier, this is not a guy that had any kind of substance abuse issues. At least he said he didn't. When he lost all this stuff, he started womanizing. He started going to the bars. He started drinking. Somebody gave him some meth. And 12 months later, he's addicted to meth. He comes to Columbus on Friday. His friend lets him out at the Dillingham Street Bridge downtown. He goes under the bridge, has a bowl of meth, starts doing it. A guy walks by. He invites him to come over and do drugs with him. Guy pulls a gun on him, took the $823 in his pocket, his bracelet, his necklace, gold necklace, and his suitcase that had his clothes in it. He had nothing. By midnight Friday night, the guy had nothing, literally nothing except what he was wearing. Fast forward to, to Monday, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. He slept in some woods. Guess where the woods were? 23rd Avenue, 23rd Street and 2nd Avenue. That didn't happen randomly. He's there Monday night. I talked to him, and a guy named Troy, we talked to him for about 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes. We call another guy. We take Lee to this other guy who gets him, a guy named Bobby. Bobby gets him that night into a safe house over in Phoenix City, a little bit of a detox, but Lee wasn't high at the time. Get him to this place over in Phoenix City Monday night. Tuesday by lunchtime, he's at Center of Hope in Anniston, Alabama in a Christian rehab for 12 months that somebody else paid for. Y'all, that stuff doesn't happen randomly. Who is God going to use? He uses his people to do that stuff. And we, we get to do that. Like what an honor and a privilege to just play some little bit of a role in whatever God's got going on. So you and I need to be on our knees, on our faces in prayer. When he says, who's going to intercede for Columbus and Phoenix City and Harris County? We need to rise up and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Y'all, we need to be a people. We need to be a, a church that jumps up and intercedes for the city. There's over 200,000 lost people in our area, probably more. They need Jesus. Who's going to intercede for them? Who, who's going to do it? Who's going to be a city on a hill? Who's going to be a light in the darkness? Y'all, it's a dark world. Who's going to be the light? 
Who's going to pray that the lost be found? Who's going to pray that, that the blind see? Who's going who's to be on their knees praying that the hungry get fed? Who's going who's to pray that, that the dude sleeping in the woods get provided a, a tent and a sleeping bag? Who's going to pray that people that need jobs find a job? Like, who's going to do it? Who's going to pray for the harvest? Who, like, who's going to do it? And I'm telling you, as long as I got any sort of say-so at all in this church family, we're not going to be some body of people doing some, quote, religious activities and checking a bunch of boxes. That, we're not going to do that. We're just not going to do it. We're going to fervently pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray, and God's going to provide opportunities. We're going to pray, and our paths are going to cross with people. People, people that we know and people that we don't know, people that are lost and people that are saved. God's going to ordain those providential relationships. He's going to provide opportunities to have a Jesus conversation. And I don't mean he's going to provide an opportunity for us to whop somebody upside the head with the Bible. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying he's going to provide an opportunity for me to condemn somebody. No, he's going to provide opportunities for me and you to compassionately speak the truth. And I mean the whole truth. The whole gospel, not little nuggets of the gospel, the whole gospel. He provides those opportunities. Y'all, we're going to pray, Lord, provide opportunities for us to play even a little role in what you got going on. Use us however you would see fit to use us. Use us by, to be the means by which you change the course of human history. And it's, it is all for your glory, Lord, not for our glory, not for your glory, not for your glory, for his glory. We get to be part of it. So y'all pray because he doesn't have to use me and you in his plan, but in his sovereignty he chooses, he chooses the body of Christ to be the vehicle to share who he is in the world. Lord, make us a praying people. Let us understand that Moses was a praying man and the Lord relented. Let us understand as it was, it was not like Moses was persuading God to do something that he didn't want to do. Lord, let us understand it wasn't Moses altering you. It, let us understand that, that really it was, it was you, Lord, and your sovereignty. It was you and your glorious purposes and promises being woven through the prayers of this man on that mountain. And I know, Lord, I pray that all of us will, will, will understand that. We'll get our arms around that you, Lord, want to do that in, in our lives. I want us to understand that this narrative in Exodus 32 is a beautiful image of the gospel. It is a beautiful, magisterial image of the gospel. Jesus is the mediator. You and I were born in the crosshairs. We were. Our sin was in the crosshairs. Jesus, as the mediator, like jumped in front of the bullet. Didn't have to. And I said it a minute ago, the most mind-blowing thing of it all, and Scripture paints this picture that it's not while we were being good and worthy and going to church four and a half times a month and, and feeding the hungry and 
taking care of the widows and the orphans and going to 17 Bible studies a week and we were praying loud enough for the people in the building next door to hear us so they know how holy we are. It wasn't, it wasn't in the middle of all that, quote, goodness, which is not really goodness, but it wasn't in the middle of that that Jesus jumped on the cross and died. Y'all, it was in the middle of the sin. Scripture says, while we were yet sinners. It was in the middle of of Lee doing a bowl of meth underneath the Dillingham Street Bridge that Jesus died on the cross for him. Y'all, it was in the middle of the lady embezzling some money from the place she worked. It was in the middle of the guy looking at stuff on the web he shouldn't be looking at. It was in the middle of, of the husband screaming and yelling and cussing his wife out. Y'all, it was in the middle of all of that that Christ died for you. There is no love that we can even fathom like that. I couldn't, I love my wife, I would, I would die for her. But that love that I have for Susan and Zach and Will and little Z and Caroline and the baby that's coming, it ain't nothing compared to that. It ain't nothing compared to the love that Jesus has for you. God will not forsake you. I want y'all to get that, man. God will not forsake you. And you can have this idea, this mindset, which people have all the time, all the time. As soon as I get cleaned up and good enough, I'll go to church. As soon as I get cleaned up and good enough, I know my friend's been wanting to talk to me about this Jesus dude for 30 years. As soon as I get good enough, I'll have that conversation. No, 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 no. You could, number one, you can never be good enough. Be worthy enough, ever be good enough to gain entrance into heaven. And you can never, ever be bad enough to be denied entrance. Now, please understand that. Never. As long as there's breath in your lungs to confess Christ, as long as there's breath in your lungs and in your heart to repent, to turn away from the sin, and confess and believe, confess that that death on the cross really did take care of your sin, and it really did, and to believe that in history, in around 33 A.D., that that death happened and that a sure enough heart stop, brainwave stop, dead guy went into a tomb, and he was really dead, don't listen to what some dumb Discovery Channel says that he really wasn't dead. He was dead when he went in the grave. And you confess that and, that you, and you believe that he walked out of the grave alive. He conquered death. Not purposelessly. He didn't do that. It wasn't a random thing. And it, it wasn't purposeless. He conquered death so you and I can have everlasting life. Y'all, and we bring nothing to the table. That's what's so hard because we live in a world that is cause and effect and you get what you deserve in reaping and sowing. But this cross is foolishness to those that are lost. It's foolishness. God reveals that to us though. You just got to understand that. And I'm asking you today, today if you've never said yes to that, it is the greatest deal ever in the history of the planet. You get to exchange all your junk 
and you get to get his righteousness. There is no greater deal ever. And if you have never, and it's free to you, it wasn't free to him. He got nailed to a cross and got beaten mercilessly for hours. So it wasn't free to him, but it's free to me and you. And no, we don't deserve it. And yes, he did it. And so if you've never said yes to that offer, I would love for you to say yes to that offer right this second. And you can come right down here and pray. And you can be right here and you can say, Lord, save me. And he has never, ever, ever said no to somebody. Never. It's outside of his character. Right? And I would just ask you at a minimum, don't go to sleep tonight without really considering that offer. You pray something like this. Lord, today is the day. Today is the day. It's the day where I I admit that I'm a sinner. And today is the day where I repent. I turn away from it. And I turn towards you. And Lord, today is the day that I, I really do believe that your death took care of my sin. And I really do believe that you went in a grave dead and came out alive. And Lord, I'm asking you right now to save me. I'm not worthy. Not even close to worthy. But Lord, I'm just asking you to save me. And I'm asking you to teach me. And I'm asking you to walk with me for the rest of my life. I'm asking you to put your arm around me and hang out with me for the rest of my life. Lord, I'm asking you to save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, if that's you, and even if it's not you, and you just want prayer, we've got a little prayer station over there. If you need somebody to pray with you, we would be honored to do that. Um, we're going to turn the lights down a little bit. We're going to sing a little bit. We're going to have a, we call it God plunge, biblical baptism. We're going to dunk a couple of folks today. It's a beautiful image of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, um, oh, the kids are already here. I would ask y'all, if, if you've got a kid here, after, the, after we do this, they're going to go back over there. And so you can, you can I was going to say, check out your kid. I guess you can get your child from over there. Please don't take them home from here. Um, but they're going to head back over there as soon as we're done.